There's an author illustrator, her name's Susie Becker, and she teamed up with some elementary school students to write a book called The All Better Book, all right? Got a, an image up here if you're interested in the book, all right? And so the book is filled with ideas of children on how to make the world a better place, all right? And they cover some doozy of topics, all right? So one of the things that she goes and asks kids about and what their ideas of how to make this world a better place is climate control, Can you imagine trying to go to an elementary student like eight, nine years old and the type of responses you get about climate control? Another one would be like addictive substances. So like asking kids, what do you do with this kind of problem? How do we make this world a better place? And I think one of the toughest ones that she asked them was the pandemic of loneliness. All right. So here's how she posed the question to these students. With billions of people in the world... Someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. And what do you suggest? And some of the responses were too good not to share with you. All right. So I got three of them that are up here. So the first one comes from Kalani. She's age eight. She says this, people should find lonely people and ask their name and address. And then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. And when you have an an even amount of each other, assign lonely people and not lonely people together in the newspaper. (laughs) So Kalani is the next president of the United States because her admin skills are off the charts. She's got to be an oldest child, right? Like, got to be an oldest child. Next one comes from Max. He's age nine, and he says this, make food that talks to you when you eat it. For instance, it would say, how are you doing? And what happened to you today? All right, so Max gets the most imaginative, right? He's the most creative. He's got to be like the middle child or something. And then you have Matt, who's age eight. He says this, we could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and then take them places. And it's like, Matt has a lot to learn about marriage. Um, there's not just as simple as like, here's your wife or here's your husband. He's got a lot to learn. Um, so these are very intriguing questions or answers to a really difficult question. Um, but obviously we can look at them. We laugh because they're cute, but we know that they're not the real answer. So with billions of people in the world... Someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. And I love Pastor Dahati Lewis's response to this problem. He says the church is God's response to our need for belonging. And that's exactly what our passage that we're looking at tonight is talking about. All right. So the Apostle Peter, he's writing to a number of different places. This letter is to be passed around where there's these pop-up churches that are happening in Asia Minor, which would be modern day Turkey. And one of the main topics that he hits throughout this whole entire book is the idea of community, the type of group of people that God is shaping together as a collection of these deposits of those that follow Jesus in a world that has gone mad. And so as we look at this tonight, I want us to look at it, and there's two things that I think stand out in these five verses for us that I just want to unpack together tonight. So us as the church, there's two things that we see here about ourselves. One, we're Bible people. As the church, we are Bible people. And then secondly, we're God's temple. All right. And so here's what we're going to do. I just want to go and look at the importance of the Bible 
in the place of God's community. I want us to just unpack that, tease it out for a little bit. Then I also want us to look at the importance of one another when it comes to the life of the church, the relationships that God forms and fashions in the community, how important those are for us in our walk with Jesus. And then we're going to end with three next steps that we can take in response to tonight, all right? So first, we're going to look at how we are Bible people. And for us to really frame this, I want to look at a story. I want to tell you a story about Ernest Hemingway, because I think he gets to the gist of 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, all right? So Ernest Hemingway, you know him, great American author, two-time Nobel Prize winner. Um, he was also known as a womanizer, right? So he's, he was married four times. Fun little fact, three of those ladies were from St. Louis. So it's relevant to us here tonight, right? <laughs> Supposedly one of these wives that... Um, he ended up marrying, didn't really care for his writing, all right? So she, before she married Hemingway, didn't really read any of his works, didn't care for any of his writings whatsoever. But while married to him, she admitted that she grew to love his work. And here's what she said. When asked about it, she said, I fell in love with the man, and then I fell in love with what he wrote, and so in short, what Peter is saying to us in verses 1 through 3 is that we are Bible people because first we fall in love with the author, and then secondly, because we fall in love with the author, we fall in love with what he wrote. We see that we fall in love with the author in the first and last verse of this little section of 1 through 5. Um, here's what verse 3 says. He says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is speaking about our love and affection for God as the author of the scriptures. So when he says, like, we've tasted that the Lord is good, what is Peter trying to get at here? All right. So think about this. Whenever you taste something, when you taste something, it takes something from news to personal experience, doesn't it? So if you've been around Storyline, you've probably gone to Clementines at some point in time, right? Like, just incredible ice cream, right? Love it, love it. So we've had missions teams that come through here in St. Louis, and they're always asking, where are the places that we can go eat, get dessert? So we always tell them, look, you have to go to Clementine's because it's incredible. And so this is news to them, right? This is just news at that point. It's like, okay, this is great. We're going to go try to, we're going to go to this place. We'll get the ice cream. At that point in time, though, it's just news. It's just like us speaking a high game on Clementine's and the experience that you can have there. But we took a number of missions teams over the course of the summer to Clementine's, one of those being one of my closest friends that came here. And his, the, he takes the, the bite of the ice cream, the like creamy ice cream melts on his taste buds. And here's his response. This is the best ice cream I've ever had in my life. So look, he goes from hearing about how good Clementine's is to the ice cream hitting his tongue, melting. And then the, what he hears in news now becomes personal experience for him because he's tasted it. He's had the experience of it. He's been able to what was 
told to him not just hit his ears, but now hit his tongue, and then ultimately his belly has become this personal experience. And look, that's what the Christian is. It's the Christian is the one who hasn't just heard about the love and mercy of God. They've tasted it, and they've experienced it. Now, here's what's really interesting about this passage, too. So not only have we tasted the love and mercy of God, but what Peter says here is that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Now, this word good isn't the most commonly used word for good throughout the scriptures. It's actually very used, very little. And what the, one of the few instances that you actually see it is in Matthew chapter 11, all right? So Peter, having followed Jesus, he probably has certain words that hit him, that have stuck with him, right? And so Matthew 11, if you remember at the very end of that passage, this is the passage where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And at the very end in verse 30, he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy there is the word good that's used here in this I've tasted that the Lord is good. So look, here's what Peter is saying. You've not just heard the news about how good the love and mercy of God is, but you've actually tasted it. You've had personal experience. And the experience is that you've taken the yoke of Jesus. You as a weary and burdened person have come to Jesus and you've taken upon his yoke because you've seen how he's interacted with other people, the work that he's done in other people's life. You come, you take on his yoke and your experience is that it is easy and that it's good, that rest came to your soul. The yoke that he gives you is a yoke of repentance, which means it's not you coming and working your way to God, but you have just putting your worst foot forward, trusting in everything that Christ has done for you, and you've tasted how good and loving and merciful God is. So look, this is pointing to the love of the author. This is saying, I've experienced this love and kindness and mercy of God that's not just news to my ears, but it's personal experience, and it's rest for my soul. But then it goes beyond that, because you look back at verse 1, and a person that has tasted of the Lord's goodness will look at verse 1 and say, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, I want to do that. Here's what verse 1 says. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And so look, when you've tasted of the yoke of Jesus, when you've tasted the love and kindness and mercy and goodness of God, when you see a command like this, the response is, is not, let me think about it. The response is, absolutely. You look at your former way of life, and it just looks like an old garment to you. Like, you're just, how quick can I get this thing off? How quick can I get off the old way of life? Because the life that I see that Christ is offering me is way better 
than anything that I've experienced in this life. And so this old life is just like this garment that I'm just ready to like rip off of me. I'm not saying that it's easy to take it off, but I'm saying it's like the desire of your heart that there's this deep yearning. Yes, get rid of all the malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, and then give me the life of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience is what I've experienced in Jesus. And it's the life that I want to put on in Christ Jesus. Take off my old garments. Take them. Set them aside. I want to put them on. This speaks to the love of the author. Because you've experienced and you've tasted how good he is. And so when a command like this comes to you, it's like, yes, please, how quickly can I do it? Not a, well, let me drag my feet. You've experienced the love of the author. But look, whenever you experience the love of the author, you fall in love with what the author wrote. Which is what we see in the middle verse Verse 2 says this, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Here's what we see about how we love what God wrote. First is that you crave the scriptures. You crave them. And then secondly, that you live by them. So Peter says that we are like newborn infants. When we come to Jesus, when we follow Jesus, we're like newborn infants who desire the pure milk of the word. So look, we've all been around babies as they have cried for milk, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, they get loud, high-pitched, and look, it doesn't end until they get the milk, Right? Like, it's going. Like, there's no, like, swaying a baby's mind about just putting their mind on something else. Like, they cry until they are satisfied. And that's what Peter is saying about those that follow Jesus. Those that follow Jesus are like ones that crave the scriptures. They crave so much that they cry out until their soul is satisfied by the scriptures. Look, I, I have a three-year-old, our shepherd, or he's almost three. He still cries out for milk. Look, he's got like the most Missouri hick accent whenever he says milk too. It's like, he, we want milk. He wakes up before six every morning crying out to mom and dad for the milk. Look, that's what Peter is saying. We as followers of Jesus are to be like that we cry out, we crave like a baby for its milk, the scriptures as we try to digest them. Why do we cry out for them? Why do we crave them? Why do we desire them? Look, it's because where God is. The Bible is where God is. And so we crave the scriptures, we desire the scriptures because we want to be with the author. We love the author and so we love what the author wrote, but we draw near to what the author wrote because we crave God. That's what we see whenever you talk about Peter or you talk about the Apostle Paul and his idea of what the scriptures are. When you look at 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scripture is God-breathed, which means he's literally exhaled it. And then human authors like took a pen and they wrote it down. And so this is the very place that God resides. It's the voice of God that is the scriptures. And so why do we crave them? Why are we like a newborn infant that cries out for its milk as we crave the scriptures? It's because it's where God is. 
And we want to be with the author, the one that's showed us not just news, but given us personal experience of that love and mercy and goodness. Every time you draw to the scriptures, you get to meet with that very God. And so you crave it, you desire it, you want to be with the author, you want to be with the living God that has loved you to the greatest extent through his son, Jesus Christ. But not only do we crave the Bible, we also live by the Bible. That's what we see at the very end of verse 2. So that by it, you may grow up into your salvation. So look, what is the role of a parent? The role of a parent, obviously, is to like, Keep a kid alive. That's one, right? That's a big one. Um, but it's also to like help them grow into maturity, right? Now, how does a parent help a child grow into maturity? Well, they give them direction as well as instruction. So look, we come to the scriptures not just looking to be fed by God, which we do, and he does. When we come to the scriptures, he feeds our soul. He's, we meet the author there, and he continues to build us up and grow us into maturity. But look, he also gives us direction and instruction, or another way of saying that is he gives us wisdom. So look, the word is milk to our bones, but it's also a lamp to our feet. That's what we see throughout the witness of the rest of the Bible. And one of the best uh, examples of this that you get throughout all the Bible is King David. All right, when he talks about the scriptures and he talks about just the influence of it on his life, he speaks about it in a really high standard. All right, so let's look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Here's what King David has to say about the scriptures himself in terms of coming to them for wisdom and instruction from God. He says this, verse 7, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. Like, you could just stop there. <laughs> Renewing one's life, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. You couldn't find anything sweet unless it was naturally sweet at this point in time. David's saying, look, it doesn't get sweeter than honey, but it, look, the scriptures are even more sweet to my tongue than the thing that you find naturally sweet out in creation. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. Those that love the author love what he wrote, and they love what he wrote, and they live by what he wrote because they love the author. And so you come to the scriptures not only craving them, but you live by them because you have the same experience of the living God that King David had. And you come to the scriptures and everything that he says, your soul resonates with. You say, yes, I will follow the instruction and the direction and the guidance of the scriptures in my life over my own heart, which the world commonly tells us to rely upon our ungodly own gut, our own heads, we look to the scriptures, nothing else, because we love the author. And because we love the author, we love what the author wrote. So look, you value something like this, you do what it says, and what, the, what Peter's telling us 
is that the final destination when we live by this instruction is spiritual maturity. That you look like Jesus. Because that's the pattern that we see in Jesus' life, isn't it? He never turned from the left or to the right when it came to the instructions of God, but he always walked in the path that God instructed him in. And he lived perfectly, beautifully, wonderfully, marvelously. And we look and we have the same reflection in our own life. You never regret following the commands of God. You always regret when you turn to the left or to the right. So look, we're Bible people because we follow Jesus. We love the author, and so therefore we love what the author wrote. Now look, how do you gauge how well a church loves the Bible? Interesting question, right? How do you gauge? I think a lot of times we look to what happens on the platform, and then we're like, oh, that church really loves the Bible if they preach through books of the Bible, if they sing the Bible, if they're reading the Bible, oh, that church really loves the Bible. But I'm not saying that those things aren't important. I think they are. Like, here's my commitment to you. We're We're always gonna be committed to the Bible. We're always gonna be committed to preaching Jesus. Like, that... That is what we are committed to as a church. But look, I think the way that you actually gauge how much a church loves the Bible is by the people that sit in the seats and not the people that stand on the stage. Um, The church that my wife and I grew up in, um, I think they really love the Bible. They really love the Bible. And here's why. Um, the, The... the pastors that preached, yes, they preached the Bible and they preached it faithfully. They sung songs about Jesus and put songs in your lips that honored Jesus and pointed you to Jesus. But the reason that I felt that the church loved the Bible was because of the people that sat in the seats. Growing up, what they did in their life by modeling, by being in the Bible, look, it rubbed off on me. I grew a deep love for the Bible, not because of who the pastor of that church was, but because of the people of the church. They rubbed off on me. So I had businessmen, businesswomen, stay-at-home moms that were in youth group that would lead some of the different groups that I was in within the, the youth ministry as I'm growing up there. And they rubbed off on me because they loved the Bible. They gave me a journal And they taught me what it was like to walk through books of the Bible and write down passages and jot down my thoughts and write down prayers. And they taught me what the importance of consistency was in working through books of the Bible on a regular basis and how to bring it into my own life and digest it and live by it. Look, they rubbed off on me because they loved the Bible, not just the preacher, but the people. And that's what I want for us as a church. I want for us to be a church that loves the Bible, that the witness of people that come to be a part of our church as a gathering, that they can say that church loves the Bible. They love the author of the Bible, and because they love the author of the Bible, they love to be in the Bible. Because they know that's where you get to meet God. 
Like, that's what I want for us. So look, I, I'm, not some, I'm not trying to, like I said, I'm not trying to downplay what happens up here on a platform, nor am I trying to put a lot of pressure on you in the seats. I'm trying to offer us an invitation that, look, if we want to be a part of a church that loves the Bible, then it starts with each of us individually loving the Bible. We love God. We love the author of the Bible. And since we love the author, then we draw near to the God of the Bible so that we can be with the author. And so we're a people that make it a consistent pattern in our life that we're drawing in the scriptures. We're drawing near to the Bible. We're digesting the truth of God's word and that we experience and we taste the kindness and the goodness of God. We lay off the old garments of our own life and we're like a baby who yearns for the pure milk of the word and we live by it so that we can grow up into the spiritual maturity of Jesus. We're Bible people. But Peter doesn't stop there. He says that we are not only Bible people, but we're also God's temple. We see this in verses four through five. So let me reread verses four through five and then I wanna dive in and just talk about what it means that we're God's temple. Verse four says this, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So look, what Peter is telling us is that we as the church are God's temple. We, the church, or a temple. That's what he means by the phrase spiritual house, all right? So it takes many bricks to construct a temple, and these bricks are interdependent upon each other. And so here's what Peter is implying. He's implying that it's only together that we are the temple of God. That is the people that God has saved through the work of Christ Jesus. He's collecting these bricks and these stones, and he's building up a temple, all right? And so first, the temple needs a foundation that it's laid down upon. And that temple or that foundation is Jesus. The temple is built upon Jesus. So Peter calls Jesus a living stone in verse four, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. Here's what Peter is saying. Jesus, Peter is saying that Jesus is a cornerstone, all right? You need a cornerstone in order for you to build the rest of the temple. Here's what a cornerstone is. It's level and perfect, all right? A cornerstone is level and perfect. It's the first stone that you lay so that you can build, a found, build from the foundation to build the rest of the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus is. Jesus, when you look at him, is, he's perfect and he's level, meaning he's free from sin and he has perfect form. There's nothing that marks him in terms of the idea of sin in his life. There's nothing that is off. He's not prickly in the way that he interacts with people. He's perfect. Everything about Jesus is exactly what you're wanting when it comes to the idea of what God had in terms of mankind living with God himself. And it's also 
the stone that all the other stones trust upon, all right? So the cornerstone, as you build up from the cornerstone, not only is it perfect and it's level, but it's also the stone that the rest of the stones of the temple, they trust upon. And that's the stone, that's what this stone does for us. Jesus is the cornerstone. Look, we are built upon Jesus. There's no one else that we go to when it comes to the foundation of our faith. Jesus is the only one that can withhold the winds and the storms of life that can carry the load of our sin upon himself because he's the perfect cornerstone. And so we come to Jesus and we trust on him for our life and our salvation. Just as the rest of the temple, all the bricks that build the temple, trust on that cornerstone as it's being built and erected, we trust in Jesus in that same way when it comes to our life and our salvation. He is the one that we are being shaped into. When you look at what every stone of the temple wants to be like, what you want the masonry of it to look like, you want it to take the shape of the cornerstone. And so you're trying to build out the rest of the temple with bricks that match that of the cornerstone. Look, that's what God is doing in your life. He's taking you as the brick that's being built into God's temple and he's looking at the cornerstone of Jesus and he's building and he's forming and he's shaping you into that cornerstone. So look, there's no one else that we turn to when it comes to our faith and our life besides Jesus. He's the one that God builds the temple upon. He's the cornerstone. But look, it goes on from there because we... As we are being built into the temple, we are also dependent upon one another. I'm trying to use very specific language, right? We trust in Jesus, but we depend upon one another. You see that? See the difference? All right, so here's what Peter says. Peter says that we are being built into a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. Peter is communicating at least a couple of things here. All right, when he's talking about a priest, he's talking about, both about status as well as role. Status and role, all right? So when it comes to status, priests were considered holy and redeemed, meaning they had access to the living God. They could go be in God's presence, right? That's what the priests could do. But not only do they have status, they also have role. They are the ones that cared for and shepherded God's people. So they have status as well as role. In other words, God's people were dependent upon the, their instruction as well as the care in the life of God's people. And so Peter is speaking that way, but he's speaking about the church holistically. So before Jesus, you have just a small select people that are priests amongst God's people that they're dependent upon. But no longer is there a select few in status who are regarded as holy and redeemed. No, in Christ Jesus, that's the whole church. You get the status. You get the presence of God in your life. But no longer is there also a designated group that has they are God's representatives. That's now the whole church, meaning the whole church cares for one another. It's not just the priests amongst God's people. You also get the role that you are now to care for one another. And so what do we use in order to care for one another? How do we minister to one another? It's the Bible. The Bible. Look, the Bible is the governing document of God's people, all right? We make a big deal in our society about bylaws. Look, bylaws just keep you legal, what the Bible does is keep you holy. And you use the Bible, and that's what you administer to each other's life because it's in the Bible that you get the good news of the gospel. 
You don't point to the rules and regulations that you have in your life. You point to the God-man that's entered into human history, and you point to the life that you have in Jesus, and you apply that to each other's life. You are the priests. You're the ones that come and point and remind each other what Christ has done in your life. The life that he laid down for you so that you may have right relationship with God. He's the one that as we come and we gather together as God's people and we administer the scriptures to one another, we're pointing to the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That one day what we have now in part will be in full. So don't turn to the left and don't turn to the right and don't give up the hope of the faith for something else that you can take hold of in this life. No, we're encouraging each other. We're instructing each other. No, keep going. Persevere. The end is in sight. Jesus is coming back. We get to live with him fully. New resurrected bodies with Jesus. We administer the scriptures to one another. And then the end result of this is that we live a life of worship. And that's what Peter means when he talks about spiritual sacrifices. What Peter's talking about is like all of your life is now bent towards worship to the God who has so deeply loved you. Here's the good news for us, all right? Paul talks about living sacrifices, all right? Here's the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Jesus was the sacrifice that had to die so that you can be the sacrifice that lives. Jesus laid down his life so that you can take up all that he had to offer and you get to live the life that God called you to live now. That's what living before him as a living sacrifice means, a spiritual sacrifice. You give him your life and now your life is lived in the means by which he's called you to live. The life that you live this life with God, that you walk in his instructions, that you get to be with the living God here and now, and you do it before a watching world together as a new community that God has brought together in Christ Jesus, that's what you have to offer. And the end result is that the watching world sees how God is changing and transforming your life because Peter says so in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so look, your life looks different you are a living sacrifice. You don't walk the way that you used to, but now you live the life that Christ has called you into and you do it by his strength. And so it's your living sacrifice. It's your spiritual sacrifice that you're laying down before God. And collectively, the watching world looks in and gazes and they may speak about it as evil because it's different, but then they see your deeds and they give praise to God because of the work that he's doing in your life. So here's what we need to see. In order for us to grow into Christ, for us to be like that cornerstone, we need both the Bible and one another. We need the Bible and one another. Look, who I am today is a collection of all the groups of people that I've been a part of in my life that have gathered around the Bible. And the same can be said about you too. When you think about your life, you've been a part of probably many different groups if you are a new believer, maybe this is the first time in the life of our church that you've been a part of a group of believers that gather around the Bible. But it's rubbing off on you. It's changing you. 
It's doing something in your life. Look, I've been a part of amazing groups. I, had a, I was a part of amazing groups in that church that I was talking to you about, gathering with other people that were in my same season of life with people that had more seasoned life ahead of me that were sitting down and we gather and we discuss the Bible. I've been a part of groups that felt like just a bunch of misfits, right? You had homeless people, you had single dads with like, half a million dollars of debt. You had people that just never would have associated with outside of Jesus that are all crammed into an apartment. I was talking with the Rushings about this last night that just had decor that you were like, I don't know what you're thinking about. Rats that are running around, pet rats that are running around on their body. But you have like 30 people that are gathering into this room of misfits because you gather around the Bible in the name of Jesus. I've been a part of lame groups, Right? like lame groups, that it was like the conversation was lame, the activities felt pretty lame, but here we were, we're still gathering around the Bible, you know, like I look back on certain things that were shared and it's like, oh, God was at work there. And it shaped me and it shaped you too. Like I'm willing to die on this hill that the thing that most likely is going to shape you into the likeness of Jesus is gathering with people and relationships around the Bible. Because you need the Bible and you need one another in order for you to become like Jesus. So if all of this is true, right? If we are Bible people, we're God's temple, we're built upon Jesus, we are dependent upon one another and we share the goodness of the gospel to one another and that our life is viewed by a watching world and they see the change that God is doing in our life and all of this is used Then, like, here's three next steps for us, okay? Here's just like your next step to move forward in light of everything that we've talked about, all right? And they're not hard, three Gs, all right? Here we go. First one is that you get in the Bible. You get in the Bible. Like, if you need help, I print it out tonight. I'll have it on the back table. I have Bible reading plans I can place before you. Now, here's the thing that oftentimes I think hinders us in being in the Bible consistently is that we long for ecstasy instead of intimacy. We long for ecstasy instead of intimacy. So you, you go to the Bible and you, you try to sit down and then you open up the scriptures and you're like just waiting for like the audible voice of God to speak to you from the Bible. And then you close your scriptures and then you're like, well, that didn't happen. And so I feel discouraged and I don't walk away. Or you don't feel like the warm fuzzies in your soul, right? And it's like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to come back and do this. Look, God's not just coming to give you some mountaintop high that you experience. He longs for, he longs for intimacy in your life. And how do you get that? It's after a time, the long period of time of continually coming back to the Bible to spend time with the author in order to have an actual relationship with the author. So look, you come to the Bible, you don't just come longing for some like warm, fuzzy feeling, but you're doing it over the long haul so that you get a personal relationship and not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. So keep coming back to the Bible. Those moments will happen. You're, the God of the Bible will meet you and you'll get to wrestle with life there with the living God. But it's not after ecstasy, it's actually your aim is intimacy. Second one is that you get in a group. Like we said, you need each other. You do. Look, there's a way 
that God, whenever you come to the Bible, he's going to speak to your life, that he's not going to speak to somebody else. He's going to speak to somebody else differently through maybe the same scripture. And when you come and you talk about it, the thing that he told somebody else may be the only way that he, you hear from the Holy Spirit when it comes from that scripture. You need each other. And the same can be said about somebody else. So look, you keep coming to the Bible because you long for personal intimacy. You're not just coming for the warm, warm, fuzzy feelings, but you're coming to actually have a genuine relationship with the living God. But then you come and you gather with God's people in a circle to discuss the scriptures. And when you do, you learn from other people and you get to know the living God in ways that you never could have done on your own. You need one another. You need for the life of other people to rub off on you. It's how you become like Jesus. And then lastly, look, you get consistent. You get consistent. Look, doing this requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice on your end. Here's what you need to see. The best groups that I've been a part of that gather in relationships around the Bible are the ones that come ready to contribute. Look, if you're coming and it's like, I don't know if I want to be consistent because I come and it just feels kind of lame. The leader, like, you, just doesn't feel like there's great insights that are coming from the scriptures. Look, the problem may not be your leader. The problem may be you. Because you're not coming ready to contribute to the conversation. The best group leaders are the ones that just get to steer the conversation, not create the conversation. And so if you're wanting to make something of the group that you're a part of that gathers around the Bible, then you read the scriptures and you come ready to contribute. Look, people need it. And if you're just coming because it's like, oh, it just feels kind of lame, feels like it's not worth my time, the problem may be you. And so look, it requires sacrifice. Get in the Bible, get in a group, and then get consistent. And here's what I believe God's gonna do in your life. He's gonna make you more like Christ. So let me give you a quote that I think just puts all this together for us and then we'll pray, all right? Here's what Dallas Willard has to say. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary and most glorious inhabitant. That's the type of community that God has invited you in. When Jesus has invited you into the family of God. He's invited you into the family where God lives. You get to be in a community with the living God. His spirit is upon every person that has called on the name of Jesus right here in this room, and you get to be a part of it. And one day, what we experience in part, you'll get to experience in full. But man, I want to experience it now. The way that you experience it is we're a Bible people and we're God's temple. You need the Bible, you need relationships, and you put the two together. Let's be a part of that type of group, all right? Let's pray.